Tonight's talk is titled, Finding Freedom with Deeply Conditioned Patterns. Many of us come to meditation because we feel that our hearts and minds are giving us a little bit of trouble. We may feel that uh, at times we're assailed by or tossed around by unhelpful thoughts or unhelpful emotions, disturbing emotions, what Buddhists call afflictive emotions. And we may hope that through meditation we're going to learn some techniques that will help us to lead lives where we suffer less from painful um, patterns of thoughts and emotions. And sometimes after uh, years of practice, meditators will say to me, um, you know, that they feel frustrated because they sometimes encounter the same patterns arising over and over again. And they're um, a little upset that they're still repeating in their lives. We may uh, wish and believe when we see some of these deep patterns, which I'll talk about in a minute, what kinds of patterns I'm talking about. We may wish or or think that, you know, if we see them with awareness, it should be a relatively easy thing to um, learn how to transform them, that it should be a matter of relative ease. And so when we see ourselves getting stuck over and over again, we may think, well, what's wrong with me or... Why doesn't this change? We may judge ourselves. We may even think that we can't practice or can't meditate or feel discouraged about peace. We may even be a bit embarrassed and not want to admit that mindfulness doesn't seem to be doing the trick with some of these patterns. I think that we can call these deeply ingrained patterns that return again and again Um, I like to call them karmic knots. I first got this term from my um, teacher, Michelle, and not sure whether she got it from somewhere else or made it up herself. I think she invented it. Um, But karmic knots. So karmic knots are, are usually like a tangle of thoughts and emotions that have, um, repeated so many times in our mind stream that they uh, can be quite tight and inflexible. They can be like knots. There's all these strands, right, of thoughts and emotions, and they're all wound up tightly into a knot. So they're well, usually well-established, well-worn pathways in the mind. Some examples might be a deeply rooted anxiety or Um, patterns of insecurity or jealousy or um, addictive patterns, compulsive patterns, self-judgment, uncontrollable anger, perfectionism, fear of failure. Many We could uh, describe many different kinds of patterns that are these kinds of karmic knots. And most people have a couple. If you're lucky, maybe you don't. But most of us have a couple or two or three, maybe more, that we, uh, that we find come up in our practice in our lives. It would be nice if we could skip over this part of practice and just go for the bliss and the, um, and the spaciousness and, uh, and freedom without having to deal with these patterns, but it seems like we have to. It seems like uh, for most of us that to find... Uh, real freedom, not a contrived freedom of control, but a real freedom and spaciousness of mind and heart that we do have to um, work with these patterns. Usually what we call these karmic knots, they usually are patterns that were set in when we were young. That's another reason why they're inflexible, because they uh, kind of developed uh, along with... um, uh, with our with us growing up, and so they uh, get set in and and hardwired into the mind. That's another reason why they're hard to change, or sometimes they're confirmed cultural beliefs. They really um, they jive well with what our culture believes is okay. Like perfectionism, that's a confirmed cultural belief. I would say that we should be. Um, 
we should be always number one. <laughs> Sometimes these karmic knots reflect um, coping strategies we learned early or survival strategies if we grew up in an unsafe environment. Um, so they get really ossified. They get very, um, like I said, tight or um, kind of ossified in a certain form that we may have developed to learn how to make sense of this world and how to make the world seem controllable. Often these patterns change very slowly. We can meditate for many years and still find that some of these patterns arise. It's actually good that they change slowly. We don't, we don't tend to think that, but it is. It keeps us sane. That's why they change slowly. These kinds of foundational patterns um, uh, can be very survival-based, and, and, and having them change slowly helps us to uh, open and to untangle at a pace that the heart-mind can assimilate. And because of that, untangling these knots takes lots of patience. Patience, persistence, and a great deal of kindness and compassion. Not to mention mindfulness, which is what most of the talk is about. So sometimes when we talk about... uh, long-standing emotional issues. Some practitioners may feel like we're dealing more with psychotherapy rather than with spirituality. But at its core, these karmic knots are a spiritual matter where we create our strongest sense of self, where we have the highest degree of attachment and identification is around these kinds of core issues. These Core issues create a sense of who we are. And the very tightness of the knots points to the powerful amount of attachment and identification involved. So any way we can loosen these knots will lead to more space and freedom in the heart and the mind, will lead to less what we call in Buddhism identification, attachment, clinging, clinging to a sense of self. So we can see that these karmic knots are related to our understanding of self and selflessness, not self. And deeply related to our understanding of identification, which is another thing we'll talk about. So I was reflecting about this a number of months ago, about patterns, some patterns I've had over my practice. And, and um, I started to see or to think that about untangling these knots, you could say that we go through six different phases. So I'm going to talk about the six phases of working with deeply conditioned patterns. And when I say that we go through six different phases, it's not exactly a linear process. We don't go from one phase to another. We may jump around, and depending on uh, how much sleep we got last night, we may find ourselves in uh, a different um, places as far as our mindfulness around these patterns and our strength of our awareness. But there's kind of a general progression that we may notice over the years of our practice in, in the development of mindfulness around these patterns and the development of spaciousness and freedom. So there's a general progression as, as mindfulness strengthens and wisdom develops. It's really a process of um, dehypnotizing ourselves or um, reconditioning ourselves through awareness and love. So I talk about these phases too because I think for some of us to understand uh, 
this process can help us to be less judgmental when we see patterns arising over and over again and um, free up some of that energy that we may take towards judgment or aversion of these patterns, take some of that energy and apply it towards interest and investigation. While we're judging ourselves for, for what's coming up, it's um, impossible to learn. We can't see clearly what's going on. We can't develop wisdom. But if we can take some of the kind of judgment energy and turn it towards wisdom and compassion, then, or towards interest and compassion, then we can develop some wisdom. So that's one of the reasons why I, I like to talk about this. I often find that practitioners feel a sense of relief when they know that um, it's uh, quite common for some of these patterns to take a long time. Doesn't mean we're bad yogis or bad meditators. It's also true that um, the intensity of these places can be the very juice that we need for freedom. It's often said the stronger the, the afflictive emotion, the more um, potential for freedom. So you could say the, the tighter the knot, the more um, we can learn. I know that some of these hardest places in my practice have definitely been the places where I've learned the most develop the most wisdom leading to peace. There's a, a Tibetan prayer said, uh, that uh, our verse that aspiring yogis repeat. It says, Grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties and suffering on this journey so that my heart may be truly awakened and my practice of liberation and universal compassion may be truly fulfilled. So using these difficulties and suffering to um, develop both wisdom and compassion, that caring quality of heart. So to, to talk about the six phases, I thought it might be useful to um, kind of use a demonstration karmic knot. And um, the one I thought to work with is... Uh, a kind of a pervasive cultural one, I think one that I've heard many yogis mention and one that I've worked with. And that said, um, the karmic knot of perfectionism or not feeling good enough. So it can manifest in many different ways. It can manifest as striving or um, anxiety or self-judgment, self-harshness, always having to be busy and productive. That's another manifestation or maybe strand of that knot. Like I said earlier, I think it's a cultural um, habit also. Definitely hear about it from many yogis. So we'll use this karmic knot to talk a little bit about um, how these six phases work. It's also a, a kind of a cultural knot or a cultural pattern that I seem to, I think, is increasing. I, uh, I work with teaching meditation a lot to young people, teenagers and people in their 20s. And um, uh, how it seems to manifest with a lot of young people is just a real sense of pressure, just this, and always pressure to have to be um, just right or perfect or a lot of anxiety. I read recently, you know, that um, sometimes I've sensed that uh, young people are more anxious than they used to be, and some people say, oh, you just don't remember something. But I read a study, actually, last week, and it said that um, they did this test every, every uh, few years with folks using the same measure. I think it was an MMPI. <laughs> Since 1938 until um, up to date. So that's a long time. That's what, 60 years of research or 70 years. And um, young people, I, I believe it was college students they tested, and young people of today measure um, five times more likely to suffer from anxiety than young people in 1938. I find that very interesting. 
So this uh, pattern, this cultural pattern, doesn't seem to be on the wane by any means. I know that for myself, over years of mindfulness practice, I've gone from um, being very unconscious about this pattern operating to experiencing uh, a great deal of freedom from suffering around it. So that'll be part of the six phases. So the first phase with working with uh, deep patterns is, I I would call it pre-awareness. That's that these patterns, these karmic knots or patterns operate in our lives um, under the radar. We're not even yet conscious that of what's going on, of what's happening. So we'll feel the influence from these patterns, but um, we don't know it. But these patterns really influence how we see the world and how we live in it. It, But it's kind of like a fish that lives in the ocean and doesn't know there's another way to live. We live within our karmic knot without even realizing that there's another way to live and relate to the world. So we're unaware of the karmic knot, yet it shapes our lives and causes suffering to ourselves and at times to those we love, those we interact with. So when I was, when I was younger, this was the world I lived in, a world of perfectionism. And for me, it manifested a lot as anxiety. But I couldn't really see that that was going on. I didn't understand at all. It was just the way things... To me, it seemed like it was just the way things, the world was. When I was a teenager, I was a fantastic worrier. I used to go to bed at night, and um, I would review my whole day and see if there was something I hadn't worried about enough. And then I would worry about it before I went to sleep. So this was part of the perfectionism, you know. It's like I had to get it all just right. And if I thought if I worried enough, maybe that would do it. And so being hard on myself seemed normal. So that was part of that, you know, it's part of that same um, not, that being hard on myself. It seemed like that was just the normal way to live. I didn't realize that there was another way to live. When I first started practicing, this manifested, these tendencies manifested as a lot of striving as a yogi. I wanted to be super yogi. I was. <laughs> I did a good job. <laughs> I had to do it perfectly. My first three-month course, uh, uh, I sat at IMS. I was young. I was 24. And um, I didn't take one nap. That whole three-month course, it was like, wasn't all bad, but but it, <laughs> but but definitely there was that suffering and, and striving, having to get it perfect. So pre-awareness, we're not yet aware that this karmic pattern is actually um, operating. It's also interesting that sometimes we bring our karmic knots to how we practice. Sometimes we can see what our karmic knots are by how we do the practice. It's like it gets right in there. So phase two I call um, awareness, aware after. So as we begin to uh, notice our karmic knot a little bit, um, we often start out with awareness after the fact, not while it's playing out. This is how mindfulness often works, that... um, that when mindfulness isn't yet strong, we'll often be aware, oh yeah, oh I saw, okay, I see what I was doing. Um, I see how that was working. It's a great, it's a good step because it means we're starting to be aware. So, so, so after a time, I wouldn't see this uh, perfectionist pattern Um, our self-judging pattern uh, happened as it was happening, but afterwards I would be aware that it had dominated my thinking in a certain situation. You know, I would see perhaps that I'd been harsh with myself. A a great example for this, this part of the pattern is what happens for many of us with anger. So anger comes along, it hijacks us, we blow up, we say something which we wish we didn't say, and then afterwards we go, oh, wow. I was uh, hijacked there by anger. So there's a little bit of awareness afterwards, but there's not so much during. It gets by us. It's like we get hijacked, really. We get taken over. 
the Buddha said this, that this um, reflection after actions is a good way to develop mindfulness and care with our thoughts, our speech, and our actions. So our thoughts too. So we should consider this a good, a good um, beginning when we can notice this. So phase three I call awareness during. And in this phase, we start to become aware of our karmic knot while it's happening. So the pattern comes into our present time awareness. Yet in this phase, we're still fairly heavily identified with the pattern. In Buddhist terms, to say we're identified with something means that we believe it. We take it to be true. We're attached to it. So we have enough mindfulness at this point with the pattern to see it happening as it's happening, but we still don't have enough mindfulness to kind of cut through our deeply conditioned identification with the pattern. So at this point, you could say um, during this kind of phase of mindfulness with this karmic knot, I became more aware of the judgment, the perfectionism, the striving, the harshness while it was happening. This was actually more painful than the prior phases. We don't like phase number three (laughs) because it's painful. It's quite painful. But what I started to do was to let myself actually feel what was going on to actually feel the harshness, feel the insecurity, feel the judgment. And at the same time, I still pretty heavily believed it. I still believed I wasn't good enough. I needed to be better. I needed fixing, whatever. So so this phase is... um, Because it's so painful, we may find ourselves um, cursing the person who introduced us to meditation. (laughs) I used to do that. (laughs) Be like, why would we want to meditate to be like aware of this stuff and still stuck in it? You know, it's a hard time. (laughs) Natalie Goldberg says, uh, she's a Zen uh, writer, she says, the terrible truth, which is rarely mentioned, is that meditation doesn't lead us directly to some vaporous, glazed-eyed peace. It drops us right into the personal meat of human suffering. With practice, we settle right down into the barbed wire nest. And this changes us. I like that, the barbed wire nest. Hmm, phase three. So what happens is what we've been avoiding starts to come into our conscious awareness and perhaps for the first time we allow ourselves to feel it. So we're starting to see through the walls of self-deception, our walls of delusion, dissociation. And that's really powerful. That's really powerful, even if it's not pleasant. We're sticking with ourselves, developing what one teacher calls emotional honesty. We start using our energy less to resist these karmic knots and begin to free up energy to put towards interest and investigation of what is happening. So as this phase matures, we find ourselves becoming increasingly interested in meeting the truth of our experience as it is. We can become like a reporter, deeply interested in the truth of an event. Who, what, where, when, why, how does this pattern get triggered? And we develop understanding not so much to get rid of it, but to become deeply intimate with it. So we turn towards what is difficult instead of away. 
we may find ourselves at this point also to become amazed at the pervasiveness of some of these patterns. I remember one retreat where I found uh, myself judging every breath. Was that breath good enough? Did I pay good enough attention to it? I mean, it was very quick, right? But every breath, I realized that I was judging every breath I took. Wow. So we're still fairly identified at this stage. We're still caught, but we're seeing ourselves be caught, which is an improvement. And if we tend to act out of our pattern at this phase, we'll probably still find ourselves acting in the old conditioned ways much of the time. So there can be a lot of frustration. You may think we're trying to loosen the knot and then feel like we're pulling it tighter by trying to loosen it. But hopefully, too, we develop um, curiosity. We start becoming curious, allowing ourselves to experience what's happening and to see that some space starts opening up. Just the curiosity and interest, they're great for opening up space bringing flexibility into the mind and heart. That's another thing we're doing through this kind of practice is making our minds and hearts more flexible, which is another way of saying freer, more spacious. So this exploration of our karmic knots is best undertaken with wisdom and balance. So when we have interest and energy, we can move towards what's difficult and explore more deeply. But if we're not energized, or we don't have the interest at a moment, sometimes um, if we go into something that's difficult in our experience and it overwhelms us, it can be more useful sometimes to learn to withdraw, to pull back, rest the mind until interest returns. So sometimes we may even have to just say a firm no to some kind of pattern that comes up. Like for example, um, when this kind of self-judgment comes up for people, sometimes it can get really intense. It can be quite, um, people can feel a real uh, kind of intense energy against themselves And if we don't have the um, interest or energy to be able to meet that experience with some balance, we can just cause ourselves more suffering. And at that point, it can be useful just to say no, you know, not now. So sometimes we need a certain kind of firmness in our our, um, exploration too. I learned that a lot with fear. I I worked for, I've worked for many years with fear. And at first, it it could really overwhelm me. And at times, I would just have to say, no, you know, I'm not going there. Move away from it. And it can be really useful. The learning this moving away is also increasing flexibility in the mind. If we have a pattern that, that grabs us and we get stuck in it, that's inflexible, right? But if we can learn to move in and out and in and out, explore, retreat, explore, retreat, then the mind's more, more flexible. So sometimes if, if, if it's really intense for people, I'll tell them just, you know, stick your big toe in <laughs> and then pull it out. <laughs> Don't go deep sea diving yet. <laughs> just, you know, just the toe. <laughs> so it's really important that we do this connecting with um, balance and compassion, care. Part of caring for ourselves is that, that investigation with balance. So hopefully, yeah, at this stage, we're also um, starting to develop some compassion for ourselves. And we start to see that the suffering that we're experiencing isn't so personal, that it's part of the human condition. And this is another um, kind of angle of not identifying, of understanding that the suffering that we're experiencing, it's, it's, it's human. 
It's not just about me. It's not just my story. It's part of this human life, and many people also experience it. That can help us develop compassion, that kind of starting to... um, Compassion softens these experiences. So compassioning is like a softening of the mind in relationship to, to the suffering that's arising. So we start to um, incline, rather than inclining towards aversion, which is a hardening of the mind, aversion, i got this, got to get rid of this, it has to go away. It's a softening. Oh, how can I hold this with care? So in, so in turning towards the suffering, we cultivate a soft heart that can hold the truth with tenderness. And we start to develop this commitment to a certain loyalty to being present for experience, whatever it is, with as much openness as we can call forth. So we start to develop a certain steadfastness in our commitment to truth and wisdom, compassion. So the challenge with practice at this point is if we can become interested in the suffering of the karmic knot without further entrenching it. So we want to open to it but not strengthen our attachment to it. So sometimes the risks exist of getting a little too fascinated with our story, too interested in it. So we can use the stories as a as a way to consolidate our sense of self. That isn't what we're trying to do. We're not trying to um, strengthen our attachment. Or we may find ourselves investigating in order to get rid of the pain, which is another form of increasing attachment. Because anything we try to get rid of just becomes stickier and tighter. The risk, however, of not engaging with this phase of kind of skipping right over into, how did Natalie put it, vaporous glassy-eyed piece. <laughs> the risk of skipping over this phase, um, of, of jumping too quickly to not identify with things, to say, oh, not me, not mine, you know, that comes up, oh, it's not me, it's not me, this is not mine, you know, too quickly jumping to a kind of a not-self um, orientation is that sometimes we develop then a disconnected spirituality that lacks in compassion. So if we move sometimes too quickly to a wisdom perspective of disidentifying without developing um, the compassion that's engaged, that is, that's engendered by an honest engagement with what's happening, with our, the karmic knot, we may control the pattern without making genuine peace with it. Control isn't peace. We're looking for peace or freedom. Freedom comes from going through rather than avoiding. So, phase three is a long phase. Phase four, starting to not identify. So we taste more freedom as our mindfulness deepens. We may see the karmic knot pattern arise and we may realize, oh, there's another way. We may see the thoughts, for example, and realize that they're just thoughts. We don't have to believe them. Or the emotions may arise and we see they're just emotions. They can arise and they can pass away as emotions do. So it's like we start to have a little crack in our worldview. That's how I've experienced it at times. It's like, oh, there's another way. You know, this deep pattern that we're so used to, maybe it's not the way the world needs to be.
So we stopped for just a moment at least, identifying with the story and the emotion. And there's a lot of power in those moments. We can feel it. It's a kind of release of contraction, right? A release of identification or freedom. And it can feel like these moments sometimes come about as a kind of grace. But it's really the payoff for all our hard work. It's the payoff for all of phase three. It's the accumulation of mindful moments that gives us the power to break out of this old conditioning, to have choice. So we find that our minds and hearts become more flexible and more spacious. There's power and freedom. So we may see that these thoughts are just a story that we've told ourselves repeatedly and that we don't have to believe them or play them out. Sometimes I use the phrase, this is a story I tell myself. When these old patterns can come up, oh, this is a story I tell myself. It's a way to remind ourselves that we don't have to get caught. We don't have to believe it. I'm not good enough. It's just a story. So at this stage, we may start to understand a lot more of the different strands of the knot. You know, there's not, these knots have all these different strands. So we'll start to maybe understand, oh, early conditioning, how that plays a part, or the beliefs that come into this knot, or, you know, like with, with uh, self-judgment, uh, or perfectionism, we actually can start seeing that it's a protective strategy, that it's a way we protect our hearts and we start to kind of tease apart the, the knot. Retreats are a great chance for us to relax and to start to see these patterns clearly. Because we come to retreat and we don't have to be anybody, we don't have to do a whole lot. Um, we can relax perhaps some of our defensiveness and see what's going on. Let these kinds of patterns come into awareness and learn. Teachers can also help too. I know that teachers have helped me over the years a lot with kind of reflecting back to me that it's really okay what's going on. Doesn't have to be gotten rid of. I remember one early retreat uh, at IMS. Actually, it was my first three-month retreat, and um, I came in wrapped pretty tight. <laughs> and um, around day eleven, I started to have all these emotions. I was in, I went into a re- interview with my teacher, and I'm like, and I feel sad and angry and lonely and irritated and and I I, I listed about 10 emotions I I can't remember what they all were now but I was just like oh you know so he listens to me and then he looks at me and he says what's the problem (laughs) I was like you mean there's not a problem (laughs) I was so used to thinking everything had to be you know pretty neat It was an amazing teaching. I, you know, all these years, 25 years later, I still remember it. He said, oh, go take a walk, you'll be fine. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> I remember another retreat where this perfectionism pattern really opened up for me. I am. Um, and my teacher told me uh, not to meditate. And um, like I told you, up to then, I'd been super yogi. I was a very good meditator, knew how to do it. And um, and I was told not to meditate. It was terrible. <laughs> really, I was thrown into a, a pretty much I was thrown into tailspin for about a week. It was like, what am I going to do if I don't meditate? I, I could meditate one time a day. I was allowed to meditate for an hour a day, and then um, I spent most of the rest of the day walking in the woods. And um, I was allowed to do some useless gazing. That was my, the other meditation I was allowed to sit at, at the window and look out the window with a cup of tea. 
And um, it went right into my perfectionism pattern. I mean, you know, I was so used to like being such a good yogi. I had it down. Um, <laughs> and suddenly I was the worst yogi. You know, I looked at all the other yogis walking, sitting and walking, sitting and walking. Oh, can I do that? <laughs> I know how to do that. <laughs> and it was a fire too. It was this fire like I realized, and this is where the cultural thing comes in, I think. It's like I realized that I felt like I had to be doing something to be worthy of being alive, that I had to be um, performing or something in order to be like, um, to validate my existence. So it was a real fire. And then when I came out the other end, it was like, wow, freedom. I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to be somebody. So sometimes, you know, sometimes when we're going through these patterns, there's, there's a fire, but then on the other side, it's like, oh, okay. Space opens up. So as this stage uh, matures, we, can, we, we find that we can more and more often, we can see our karmic not operating and not take it so personally. The thoughts and emotions, you could say, become less sticky. There's less identification and attachment. And we can allow more of the experience to unfold with a sense of spaciousness of heart and mind. Or sometimes when the mindfulness is strong, we see the pattern and it just... So this is not identifying, but it's true not identifying. It's not kind of... um, uh, pretend not identifying. It's true because we've learned uh, how to make peace with what comes up. So it's non-identification through peace, not through some kind of control. Sometimes I experience it like, um, so I'll see the pattern and it'll be like a, a highway that I've gone down a number of times and I, I know the roadway really well because I've been down a number of times, right, through mindfulness. And so I'll see the highway and I'll go, oh, you know what, I don't think I want to go down there this time. But it's not from aversion, it's from wisdom and compassion. It's like, oh, I know that road. I know it leads to suffering, and I think this time I don't need to do it. But you can see that feels different than, oh, aversion, I hate this, go away, I'm not going to do it. It's very different. It's like I don't want to cause myself that kind of suffering. That's the place it comes from. So then, phase five, tasting freedom. So what we find um, then as we continue to explore patterns, deep patterns of thought, motion, and we start to be able to um, be with them as they're happening, and we start to have a stronger mindfulness that identifies with less with the story and less with the emotion, it's less sticky, we start to um, see that these patterns may still arise in our experience, but there's not enough attachment anymore for them to gather steam. So don't, we don't get caught in these karmic knots in the same way. And they begin to loosen and um, like fall apart. The karmic force starts to lessen. It's like when you take a knot and you're trying to undo the strands and then all of a sudden like you pull out a certain one and then you see, oh, the knot starts to fall apart. That's what happens. I found a great uh, little quote by, um, in the Shambhala Sun by uh, Leonard Cohen. He describes it a little bit as, he said, Leonard Cohen, the famous singer, he, he spent like a, a lot of years in a 
Zen monastery. He said, what happens in meditations that last 10, 15 hours is that you run through your top 10 erotic fantasies, ambition fantasies, revenge fantasies, global ratification fantasies. You run through them all until you bore yourself to death, basically. And the faculty that produces opinions and snap judgments and unrealistic scenarios for your own prominence, after you run through them for a number of years, they cease to have charge. They bore themselves into non-existence. And, and it can be a little bit like that, you know, at times. It's like you get bored of your stories, but in a good way. It's like they don't fascinate us quite as much anymore. It's like just not quite as interesting. So they pour themselves into non-existence. And so what happens at the, as this stage emerges is that, you know, our karmic knot arises less often, or when it does arise, it's not a problem. We don't take the bait. So we don't suffer. At this stage, we experience a, a sense of increased stability and confidence in our ability to meet suffering with grace. We experience increased spaciousness of mind, spaciousness of self as, as the contraction around these experiences diminishes. So the striving for perfection still arises for me at times, or the kind of the self-harshness or that turning against myself. But it doesn't have the same juice, generally, usually, as before. Again, as I said, these patterns aren't always linear. We can move back and forth. But I much more often can see it arise and, and relax into acceptance of things as they are. I know it's just a deeply conditioned pattern. I know if I go down that road, I'll suffer. I'm not so interested in striving anymore. Working with this pattern has motivated my appreciation and acceptance for experience just as it is. So the acceptance is wider and more spacious and less attached. And of course I still have work to do. I don't want to sit up here and make it sound like that's what I'm saying. But the taste of freedom and the growing sense of stability and um, compassion around this kind of suffering lets me know that I'm on the right track, the Buddhist track for me. And then what I see in my practice with a shift in this pattern is that my practice shifts much more from control to ease or from forcing to relaxing, from doing to being, from perfectionism to interest and curiosity. So it could take time to navigate these, these patterns, these phases, and develop a steady confidence in our ability to work with these karmic patterns. For particularly sticky karmic knots, it takes years. I wish I could say otherwise. <laughs> it might take more than a decade to develop some stability. And that doesn't mean that we have to wait 10 years to experience freedom, because like I said, you know, we can move anywhere um, on these phases at any time. So we can experience the freedom of non-identification and the freedom of um, spaciousness around our, our knots at any time. But for, for most of us to really um, develop that confidence and stability, it does take time. So we need a lot of uh, patience. Great parmi, that parmi of patience. Lots of patience as we navigate 
karmic knots, suffering. Eventually, we, 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 we begin to relax into the process and um, drop the idea of there's some kind of goal that we're going to reach, but instead embrace the process as it unfolds. So phase six, phase six, the liberated heart and mind. In Buddhist teachings, it's said that we can reach a level of spiritual maturity where our hearts and minds are so purified of the force of attachment that these kinds of patterns no longer have any place to land. This phase is not part of my uh, personal experience, but I take it on faith in the Buddha's teachings. So fully enlightened beings called arahants are said to be free of this kind of suffering. There's no attachment present in their heart-mind stream. So there's no longer any karmic force to perpetuate these kinds of patterns. Just space and compassion. So I'm going to end with um, a poem that I bet a lot of you have heard before, but I love, I love it because it seems to reflect a lot um, with these, these phases that I'm talking about. It's called um, Autobiography in Five Short Chapters by Portia Nelson. Chapter 1. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes me forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. Let's sit for a moment and then we'll chant the blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.